This lecture goes in tandem with the last lecture on medical illness. This lecture is important because of the increasing number of people that you meet on a daily basis who carry a DSM label and how they intend to justify their behavior based on the three or four different letters that um, they have. The, uh, my favorite right now is dysfunctional mood dysregulation disorder. That, that's, that's impressive. And that's in the latest version of the DSM-5. And that is childhood tantrums. Yeah, dysfunctional mood dysregulation disorder. My dad had a different acronym for it. It, it, it was B-R-A-T. And he had, I'm pretty certain it's genetic because I've seen it in my children and grandchildren. And my dad had a very concrete way of dealing with it. And it, it worked rather well on, on us and seemed to work well on the kids and the grandkids as well. So anyway, you're going to run into people who have all these kind of labels and you want to know how to seriously to take the labels and what to think of them. And we're going to try to help you with that this, with this last lecture. All right. You need to clarify the terms. A person who has a medical illness is someone who has a, a, a diagnosed, proven, provable uh, disease... Uh, that is demonstrated by pathology. Now, pathology is the change at, at the cell level in a human body that results in a change in function that eventually is expressed with symptoms that we call disease. And, you know, a good example for that is diabetes. Uh, I, we can show you the ch for type 1 diabetes and, and, and type 2 for, for the most part as well, the change in the pancreas that results in the change in secretion of insulin that results in the elevation of the blood sugar. We, I can listen to most diabetic stories. They can come in and tell me, you know, I've lost 25 pounds. I haven't really tried or maybe even 50 pounds. Uh, I'm, I'm drinking water all the time. I can't talk for five minutes without looking for my water bottle. I, I have eight glasses of water at my bedstand at night. I get up and I go to the bathroom every hour. Um, and, um, you know, I listen to that story after a few minutes, and that's polyphagia, polydipsia, and polyuria. Go to the bathroom all the time, drink water all the time, eat like a horse, still lose weight. And I'll look at them and say, you have diabetes. Now, I confirm that diagnosis by doing a blood sugar. And, you know, I can have my nurse come in, stick their finger, and boom, within a minute, I, I know what they have. That's disease. Disease which has underlying pathology, which can be validated by the testing that we can do uh, from, a, from a laboratory viewpoint. That's medical illness. People with psychological diagnoses are those who've been labeled with a label that comes out of the DSM. And unlike people with medical illnesses, these, these people are generally um, have these labels because of their thoughts, emotions, and behavior. Usually they're taking medicine. Most of the people who come to counseling, uh, you'll find, uh, in, at least in our counseling center, are already taking medicine uh, before they get to us. Uh, it doesn't prevent them from being counseled. Uh, and the reason why they come to see us is didn't work. Yeah, it's not helping. If it was helping, you know, they, they, they wouldn't waste their time coming. So usually the reason why they're there is because it's not working so well. And, uh, and generally, most of the, the disease that have labels out of the DSM do not have any underlying pathology that has ever been demonstrated. 
with the exception of things like Huntington Chorea, Alzheimer's uh, disease, um, schizophrenia now, uh, as, as of January, schizophrenia, you know, we are in the hunt. That is the most encouraging thing in science uh, this year has been the um, delineation of the genetic difference that affects C4 that then affects the immune system that probably is what results in the damage that occurs in the brain that results in the hallucinations and psychosis that people have with schizophrenia. Um, so, but most of the DSM labels don't have any pathology associated associated with them. Um, now, you know, I um, keep skipping on. I'm thankful for the privilege of taking care of people in both categories, both medical and in and those who come in with the uh, psychiatric or psychological disorders. Uh, it is important to differentiate between the two as we help them, though. And as we do that, we need to be compassionate and humble as we interact with folks who, who struggle in both categories. I, honestly, I always say that when people come in and they're drank, drowning in two or three of the DSM label acronyms, I... I try to treat them like expensive China. I try to treat them very carefully because I know that the words that I say will have an impact on the way they, their, their outcome. So I try to pick my words with love and mercy and grace. We're glad for objective science. Uh, as I said, in, in the first hour uh, down in Brazil, there were people asking me if I was worried that science would find uh, causes for some of these labels and and it would upset what I think about biblical counseling. And I don't view it that way at all. I, I think if we had an adequate test that could tell us if someone actually had ADHD, what would happen is that maybe 90% of the people who get labeled with it every year wouldn't be. Um, mo- mostly because, and I can't talk about this at length, I don't believe that ADHD is a disease. I think it's a difference a difference in the way people learn. And that's what current research is telling us, that these kids who have to move and can't sit still actually learn better while they're moving. And if you make them sit still, they don't learn as well, as opposed to the other group of kids who don't have to move. And if you make them move, they don't learn very well. So, you know, what we have is an educational problem there, not a medical one. All right, we understand that good people differ on this subject. Uh, You know, it's not hard to get an argument about it. I know that folks argue about where you put the line between a spiritual and a, uh, and, a, and a physical ailment. I spent the last 25 years in that space between medicine and, and biblical counseling, sometimes being shot at from both sides. Now, we need to understand how diagnoses are made. Many counselees, they come with labels when they come for counseling. And they get them off the internet, they get them from their friends, they get them from their relatives, sometimes they get them from teachers, sometimes they get them from doctors and other counselors. The DSM does explain what the criteria is that they use to make the diagnosis, but it does not explain the source of the problem or the cure. Nothing in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual will tell you why someone has these problems, nor does it tell you how, how to treat it. And the reason, the reason why that's the case is because that, it was designed that way. It moved that way in 1980 when Robert Spitzer revised, was the head of the revision for the DSM, DSM-3. Now, understand the difference between psychological diagnoses and medical diagnoses. 
for medical diagnoses, there are a number of organic causes of behavior problems. Um, things like hyper and hypothyroidism change people's behavior. The one that I like most is pica. Anybody here know what pica is? Ah, oh, a few of you. It's when kids eat dirt. And when pregnant women eat whole bags of carrots and whole gallons of ice cream in one sitting and feel compelled to do so. And it's when people will eat whole bags of ice to the point of cracking their, their teeth, much to the joy of their dentist who puts that $1,300 crown on their teeth. And I, you know, I could see myself in a counseling situation with a couple of dear parents who've struggled with little Junior who's eating dirt and they have counseled him biblically and they've talked to him about how it's disrespectful for him to ignore their admonition not to eat dirt. And you would think, wow, boy, this kid is really a tough nut to crack until you send him off to get a complete blood count and you find out that he has anemia. He has iron deficiency anemia. And when you give him the iron to correct the anemia, he quits eating dirt. And the pregnant lady quits eating carrots. And the ice cruncher quits crunching ice. It is behavior that is directly connected and observed to the defect. Of course, when we discover what the defect is, we tell them that they have iron deficiency anemia. We don't tell them they have dirt eater's disease. (laughs) All right. So whenever there's an organic cause for the problem, we give it a medical diagnosis. And I'll tell you this, I believe that in my lifetime, maybe within five years, that's kind of optimistic, maybe 10, schizophrenia will cease to be a psychiatric diagnosis. There's great hope with that. If you understand the pathology of something, eventually you can test for it. And when you can test for it and you understand the pathology, maybe the first time someone has a psychotic episode, the first time they hear voices, you can intervene and stop the process. Because schizophrenia is a progressive disorder, the disease, it continues. The medicine that we have currently doesn't stop the progression of the problem. It'll progress at the same rate, either slowly or quickly, but it will progress. And what we're really looking for is a cure, not mere palliation, an honest-to-goodness cure. And I think we'll see that. Then, the diagnosis uh, primarily describes the disease in the body rather than the symptoms. This is always an important thing. Medical science has always been at our best when the problems that we treat are defined by pathology. You know, we've done great work with diabetes. Uh, We've done amazing work with hypertension. You know, we defined the pathology and it it informs how we treat. And and every year, you know, when I started practicing medicine, we had three drugs to treat hypertension and most guys would rather drop dead than take them. Yeah, I mean, seriously, they just as soon be dead than take the medicine that we had for hypertension. That was, that was how bad the drugs were. Now we probably have 25 or 50 different drugs for hypertension. We can almost design it so that the side effect that you have from it will help some other problem that you're facing. Read just this morning that propranolol now is considered to be possibly helpful in treating cancer. Um, you know, metformin, much the same way, you know, useful in, you know, finding out that side effects from the drugs that we have uh, help other things. So when we understand pathology, we do a really good job. When we don't understand pathology, we end up with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Do not walk out of here thinking that I just whacked people who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I did not say that, and I don't mean to say it. I, I don't mean to try to say they don't hurt. I just say we don't understand why. 
We do not have a clue. For a long time, it was a rheumatologic disorder, and then the rheumatologists were forced to admit that there's no inflammation. No inflammation, no rheumatologic disorder. You know, no, no pathology at the biopsy site. Now they're calling it a disease of pain perception, which loosely translated means we don't exactly know what is wrong with you still. And the result of that is, is that often we end up treating people with drugs that have really significant side effects. And at times, the side effects will be worse than the disease. That's, that's what I'm saying. If you understand the pathology, you can clearly diagnose and treat the disease. If you don't, you end up doing not as well. All right. So to qualify as an illness, the condition must show damage to the body's physical tissue, which is absolutely true. Any disease has pathology. doesn't always mean that we know it. My wife has migraine headaches. Uh, We have four children, two daughters, two sons. One son looks exactly like me. One son looks like both of us. Uh, The one daughter looks exactly like her mother. The other daughter looks like both of us. And uh, the one, since my wife has migraine headaches, you guess which one has the, the kids has migraine headaches? The daughter that looks exactly like her. Why? Because migraine headaches have a fairly significant genetic disposition, even though we don't understand the genetics, simply because, you know, when you start talking about finding the exact gene of anything, you might as well take a shotgun outside at night, look up at the sky, and shoot at a star. That, that's just about how effective you're going to be. It is just that complicated a process. So, and I do note that, you know, so both my wife and my daughter have headaches. We don't understand why. Uh, we can see maybe on an MRI the after effects of a migraine headache, but we don't know the causation. Or, and the medicines that we have actually are lots better today than, than we had when I started in 1975 as a physician. I do note that both my daughter and my wife had to live with me, and that might have something to do with their headaches. But Anyway, um, so all illness will have a, a pathology. Sometimes we may not know what it is. Now, psychological diagnoses, on the other hand, are entirely different. Uh, it is, all comes from the basis of uh, uh, whether or not you conform to a label that's in the DSM. Uh, various theories in my lifetime have been proposed and abandoned. The, the first popular one was Sigmund Freud, who I must assume had a terrible relationship with his mother, since almost everything that was wrong with people seemed to be related to having a dysfunctional relationship to your mother. Um, and that sort of passed away, thankfully. Then there was uh, B.F. Skinner, who said we are all rats in a maze, and uh, we are simply products of our experiences and our learning. Um, That, too, has uh, passed on um, probably a a fair amount, but not completely. It it survives in cognitive behavioral therapy. If you want to know where the Skinnerites live, it's it's in CBT. And then there's the chemical imbalance theory, which has been declared null and void now. Uh, he, even my, my old well, sort of friend, who has long been a uh, counseling defender of the chemical, and theory, chemical imbalance theory of, of, uh, of life and of depression, has thrown in the towel and said now it's a disease, a neurodegenerative disorder. Uh, which I would say theoretically probably uh, is about as likely as the chemical imbalance theory. Um, not going to explain all of it. Might explain a small part of it. I, you know, maybe 2 to 3% you might, might get a reasonable explanation out of that kind of theory. But it's still a theory. Now what makes this... Now what's the difference between the two? Uh, it's pretty simple. Medicine uh, 
looks at disease that, uh, with pathology that cause symptoms. Psychology starts with symptoms and they come back to a theory to explain those symptoms. All right? Why is this important? What makes the difference? All right, let's see. I have until 3.20. All right. I need to try to get done on time this time. I'm going to do my best. Well, this gets really important when the counselee come, who comes in to see you in the counseling room is sitting across from you with psychological labels and medical problems. It's really important, particularly if they're not doing well. If they're doing poorly, as will often be the case if they have already seen two or three doctors and now showing up to talk to you about it. It's important if they've done everything the doctor has told them to do. It's important if they're taking the medicine the way the doctor prescribed and they're no better. Well, now we're going to have a case study. This one's real. This is a lady that I counseled at our counseling center in Lafayette mm, a good while back, maybe 15 years ago. And she gave me permission to tell her story to anybody I wanted to. And so here we go. She was a 40-year-old white female. And at the time she presented to the counseling center, she was a believer. Um, She came with her sister, who was a registered nurse, who was also a believer. On that first day that she showed up, um, she was dying. She was literally uh, starving to death. She was being cared for by a psychiatrist who meant her nothing but good. And, and please remember that doctors, psychiatrists, all physicians actually, most all of us actually went to medical school because we wanted to and we wanted to help people. And, and when we get up in the morning, we don't get up with the intent of hurting people. You know, actually what we're there for is to try to figure out problems and to help folks solve them. That's, that's what we are. We're problem solvers in, in the strictest sense of the word. Um, so, so when you're thinking about the psychiatrist who's taking care of the counselee that you're seeing, you should not think ill of them, all right? Really shouldn't. They're just trying to take care of a, a person who may be unsaved, who's living in an unsaved way, and they're trying to help them with unsaved techniques. That's what they're doing. And they're doing the best that they may be able to do. So this lady had seen the psychiatrist. She'd been in the hospital twice. She was taking three medicines, and she was slowly dying. She was labeled with depression and with anorexia nervosa, which was a little unusual for a 40-year-old woman to develop that. You know, usually these people are, are earlier. They, they start off in, teen, in their teen years, and, and, and they grow towards it. They just don't pop up with it at the age of 40. Uh, as I said, the sister who brought her in was a registered nurse, and she was very instrumental in her sister's eventual deliverance, her repentance, and, and her recovery. She later told me that after the first hour of counseling that um, she thought I was crazy. That was exactly what she said. Um, but she brought her sister back, brought her sister back for the second hour. And, and the reason why she brought her sister back was they had no place else to go. I mean, we were the last stop on the rail line. They had been everywhere. And she was watching her sister slowly die. She was so starved to death that when she talked, she would talk like this all the time. And it really drove 
me crazy after a while, yes. And the reason why she talked like that was because she was in the terminal effects. Uh, it was a terminal effect of starvation, yeah. She didn't have enough sugar left in her body to power her brain. She was very much like an old 486 computer. Does anybody in here remember 486 computers? Weren't we so powerful back then? And, and we had... We had hard drives, didn't you? And and they were this wide and this deep and they were that thick and they would spin. And if they started to act up, sometimes you just take something a little heavy and hit it on the side or, or you would unplug it and take it and put it in the freezer, wouldn't you? Yes, things like that. And, and right now, my cell phone has more, more power, well, more power than one inch of that computer. And, and when it got full, the computer, what would it do? It would start to slow down. And, and it got to the point where you could, you could hit a function button on it and you could run off to the bathroom and uh, then wash your hands. And then you could go to the kitchen, make yourself a sandwich, get a coat, come back, and it would still just be grinding along because your hard drive was too full, right? That was the way, that's the way it was back then. And that was the way this woman talked, just like that. Guess what the first question she asked me was? Can I quit taking my medicine? I don't know what it is. Why, why do people come to biblical counselors and the first question on their mind is, can I quit taking my medicine? Of course, I told her, absolutely not. Why? Because if she stopped it all at once, get what's what would happen? She'd have amazing withdrawal effects, probably not do very well, and then she'd be convinced that she needed to take it for the rest of her life. So I told her no. I told her we have a lot of things to work on between now and before whenever you decide to quit taking medicine and we'll come back to talk about it. And I never did again. I never talked to her about that medicine again. But I will tell you that at the end of the story, I, I know that she's not taking it anymore. All right? But I didn't, it wasn't what I did and it wasn't the point of counseling at all. I did tell her that there was one drug that she was using that she could quit right then. It was nicotine guys don't get that, huh? Okay, all right, smoking. Make her gain weight. Ooh. The reason why people lose weight when they smoke is because it's a stimulant. Cocaine, amphetamine, pseudoephedrine, crystal methamphetamine, nicotine, caffeine, all of them are stimulants. They're all habit-forming. If you're a dedicated, and I am, I am a recovering caffeine addict, Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm a caffeine addict. Yes, I had to quit because it makes my heart beat funny. And I can tell you that I understand drug addiction entirely, you know, because if I could walk out here and get a real, a real tall Starbucks with all the caffeine in it, I would, but I can't because it'll make my heart do funny things. So, and so it is with the, the medications that she was taking. If you stop them all at once, that you have withdrawal effects. And I told her not to. So what was I going to do with this lady? Um, well, I was, it was a dilemma. Was I going to, as a counselor, be bound by the labels that she bore of depression and anorexia nervosa? Was I going to look at her and say, well, ma'am, you have depression and anorexia nervosa. And guess what? I can't help you very much because those are medical problems. And, and right now you're in the hands of a good physician and there's really not much more I can add. I could do that, I suppose. And I would have given her absolutely no hope. It would have nothing to offer her. What I could do and what I did was I could ignore those labels. I could make a mental note of them. I could write them down in my notes and leave them sitting there and then set them aside and address her behavior from a biblical viewpoint. And if I did that, I had the opportunity to help her. Now, I have a couple sentences that you need to write down because they'll be useful to you as you deal with all the DSM labels. 
The uh, first sentence is, and I use this when I'm dealing with people who come in and tell me that they have um, medical or DSM problems. And it is, I will call nothing a disease that the Bible clearly calls sin. Ready? I'll say it again. I will call nothing a disease that the Bible clearly calls sin. It's like calling somebody an alcoholic or a drunk, isn't it? If I call them an alcoholic, I tell them that they belong in the medical health care delivery system, don't I? And if, and how successful is that? You know, it's like sometimes people are rehab addicts, aren't they? Yeah, they, they go from one rehab center to, the, to another. Medicine currently, the current medical treatment for alcoholism is miserable. doesn't work very well at all. Or I can call them a drunk, which is so harsh, isn't it? It's hard, except it gives them hope. Why, would it, why, why does getting called a drunk have hope? You can do what? You can, see our word, what is it? You could repent. Yes, drunkenness is a sin, is it not? Yes, it is. And don't misunderstand me, it gets complicated if you're drinking a quart a day, and you're probably going to need some medical help to stop that. But the ultimate outcome, victory outcome for it is repentance. Yes, and finding something besides a coffee cup to call your higher power. You know, find Jesus and have him change your life. Have the Holy Spirit come live inside your heart. So I'll never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. If the Bible says what you're doing is worrying, I'm not going to call it anxiety disorder. I'm going to call it worry. We're going to deal with it the way the Bible says. Then I will never call anything a sin. Second statement, I'll never call anything a sin unless the Bible clearly does. I'll never call anything a sin unless the Bible clearly does. I'm not going to take my social preferences and enforce them on other people with the weight of Scripture. I won't do that. And then the last thing I always say is I look for pathology. Always look for pathology. If somebody wants to tell you they have a disease, try to understand what the pathology is. With that in mind, I came alongside that dear lady who had no pathology. Anorexia nervosa has no causative pathology and neither to this date does depression. And I came alongside her and I made a choice. I wouldn't let the course of her counseling be determined by her labels. That's the main lesson of the lecture. Don't let your counseling be determined by the person's labels. All right? During the data gathering phase, you need to ask the counselee if they understand how they got the label. Most people don't. And the reason why they don't is because most physicians don't explain it to them. Indeed, 60% of the diagnoses that get made that are psychiatric diagnoses in the United States, between 50 to 60% of them, uh, do not meet any criteria for any disorder. That's research in the past couple of years. And at least 50 to 60% of physicians don't use the DSM criteria to make a diagnosis of depression. And what's worse, they really think they're still good at making the diagnosis, even though they'll be wrong uh, more than half the time. So you need to ask the counselee how the diagnosis was made. Then, when the time is right, you need to talk to your counselee about switching from secular terms to biblical We did that in the first hour. The place that um, started the process for my counselee was that whenever she would come in, she would tell us that she just wanted to feel better. She'd get really big tears in her eyes, and she would say, I just want to feel better. And I I can't, I'm not going to try to act like she did while she did it. But, and then she would tell me things like, doesn't God want me to feel better? And then she would say, why don't you just let me die? 
Those would be the things that she would say over and over and over again. And frankly, after a while, I got kind of tired of it. And when someone tells you something like that, you should be somewhat suspicious. You know, you should be somewhat suspicious about what it is that they're really talking about because they haven't really told you anything. They just want to feel better. It occurred to me I should ask her what the world would look like if she did feel better, which is exactly what I asked her. Whenever you have a counselor who comes in and says those kind of things, what you should be asking them is, is, well, how would life have to change in order for you to tolerate what's going on right now? That's what you want to ask them. How will life change? If, how would life have to change if you're going to be able to live with the situation as it is? What would the world look like if you felt better? She looked at me and said, I want my ex-husband back. Poof, just like that. <laughs> we were aghast. The reason why we were aghast was because... He was a drunk, and he used to beat her, and he beat her kids. Yeah, that was the guy she want, wanted back. He was unsaved, and she was a Christian, and, and she still wanted him back. And it made absolutely no sense to us, because idolatry is never logical, is it? Idolatry is never logical. We, we thought she ought to be the lady like in South Pacific. Okay, how many of you have seen South Pacific? Anybody? Oh, good. The older I get, the less culturally relevant my movie illustrations become. <laughs> It's dangerous. I, I'm, being, I'm being checked out of life. Anyway, there's this, there's this lady who's dumped by her boyfriend, and, and in the scene, she is singing a song, and it's going to wash that man right out of my hair. Yes. And we thought that's what this lady ought to be singing. Going to wash that man right out of my hair. Why in the world do you want him back? And, and unfortunately for her, she'd made this Faustian bargain. She had decided that if she lost 70 pounds, she'd be skinny again. And if she were skinny again, her ex-husband would see her. And if he saw her thin, he would be attracted to her, leave, her, leave his current wife, and come back to her. That was how idolatrous and convoluted her, her thinking was. And the only problem with it was is that she put her goal weight about 25 pounds on the other side of dead. We, she had a powerful idol that was driving all of this behavior. You know, she didn't have a disease. She had an idolatrous heart. And once we knew that, we had something to work with. And, and we could see her helped. Now, you need to speak appropriately to the people about their medicine. I, I told you what I told her about her medicine. This is where I have to tell you that medicine is a Romans 14 issue. Period, beginning of line and end of line. Romans 14 is the argument that they had... Uh, at Rome over whether it was right or wrong to eat meat offered to idols. And you had two sides to the argument, the vegetarians and the meat eaters. Still arguing, aren't they? Yeah, I guess they are. Yeah, they haven't stopped yet, have they? And the, the one side, the meat eaters would say, well, you're just weaker brethren. If you knew what we knew and you were as smart as we were, you could eat this meat and it wouldn't bother you. And the vegetarians were saying, well, you're just a bunch of idolaters. If you were spiritual like we were, you'd just eat vegetables like we eat. And they were judging each other apace. And what did Paul say about it in Romans chapter 14? Doesn't matter. What did matter to him is that they were judging each other, and he roundly thumps them on the head for that. And from that chapter, when Paul said, it makes no difference if you eat the meat, you're not any better if you do, and you're not any better if you don't. We, we generate from that the doctrine of Christian liberty. Do you all know what Christian liberty is? Christian liberty is a doctrine that tells us, as Reformation Christians, that if the Bible doesn't specifically say something about a thing that we wish to do, a practice, a habit, anything, 
then we're free to make a choice about the matter. We have the privilege within the confines of all the rest of Scripture. We're not just free to make our choice. That's licentiousness. That's not liberty. We have to hedge it in with everything else we know about Scripture. And I can tell you that pills are not mentioned in the Bible. Are they? No. So we have to look at it from a Romans 14 sense. And and I think mostly uh, biblical counseling gets a lot of bad press over this when we really, at least I don't think about this, and I've been teaching this for, oh, since 1998 now. Um, It was like almost going on 19 years um, that, you know, that somehow we are anti-medicine and anti-doctor. That, that is not the case at all. And, and, and the question is wrong. It's not whether or not it's right or wrong to take medicine. The question is, does it work? You know, and that's the question we should have been asking all along. And the question is, is, is it wise to take this medicine or is it unwise? And that's the question we should have been asking. Is the drug effect worth the side effect? And quite frankly, when it comes to antidepressants, for the vast majority of people, probably 90% of them, it is not worth the side effects that come with the drug. Maybe for 10%, it might be useful and helpful. But for the vast majority of people, it's probably not nearly as helpful as we'd hoped. So when you come away from here, Dr. Hodges has not said that you should quit taking your pills or your potions or anything like that. Have I? Could you say that louder, please? Thank you. What I have told you is, is that it is a Christian liberty issue. And, and, you know, you ought to sit down with your doctor and ask him what the side effects and benefits are for any kind of medicine he gives you before you take it. And if he's not willing to explain those things in detail, maybe you need a different doctor you know, or somebody who will explain it to you in detail. All right. So, so. Most of, the, most of the patients I see, most of the counselees that I see are already taking medicine most of the time. You need to get their medication history. As a biblical counselor, you should never encourage someone to stop taking their medicine or decrease or change their dose. If you have concerns about the medicine the individual is taking, you send them back to their doctor. I have an unlimited license to practice medicine in the state of Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Oregon. And I can tell you, when I'm counseling people in Indiana, I do not change anything about their medicine because I view that as unethical. I didn't write the script. I am not going, I wasn't there when it was written. I am not going to change it. And I will not advise them to change it. If I think that, you know, I've had a couple of counselees that I've sent back to their doctors, one because they couldn't stay awake. They'd come in, sit down in the counseling session and promptly go to sleep. What good is that? I wrote a nice note to the psychiatrist, can't stay awake for an hour, could you please reduce the dose? And they did, you know, just like that. Another one couldn't sit still. Her psychiatrist had told her not to take amphetamines anyway, you know. So I suggested she do what her psychiatrist told her that she should do. But I don't tell people to change their medicines, and neither should you. Then, you uh, want to base your factual under- you want to base conversations on a factual understanding of the chemical imbalance. I think we can deal with this in a hurry. Uh, you should always be sympathetic when people say they have chemical imbalances. I'm sympathetic, and then I tell them where the articles are that they, that they can go find that will explain to them that science and medicine have actually moved on. And that we don't really think a chemical imbalance does is the cause of depression. We should always be patient and respectful, kind and respectful, and then we should be, you got those two blanks? Yes. Kind and respectful. And then we should be patient when we're talking to people as they're trying to process the difference between what we uh, say as, um, as counselors and what they've heard from physicians or other counselors. 
chemical imbalance, if you look at it under the microscope, it is supposed to be an imbalance of the catecholamines at the junction between the nerves that come from the periphery of the body and end in the brain. And, it, and the old theory was that either the serotonin, which is one of them, is either too high or too low. Generally, it was considered to be too low and that taking these medicines raised them. We know that's probably not very true. Um, um, probably the most recent research I've read speculates that it is the two weeks worth of side effects that everybody gets at the beginning, which probably makes people think that this medicine is some major thing and generates the placebo effect that we see. Um, and, and the reason why that's important and the reason why it goes away in two weeks is that the serotonin level in your brain is an auto-regulated thermostat-driven level, and you cannot drive it up and keep it up. You know, once, once you raise it by any chemical means that you take, what your body will do is look at it and say, too high, and lower it. And some people have said it is the process of trying to lower it that helps people who are depressed, which is, again, another speculative theory. But at any rate, chemical imbalance theory is really uh, passe at this point, which brings me to the idea that I should revise this lecture, shouldn't I? Yes. Um, again, the imbalance is supposed to cause depression and other disorders. We know that's probably not true. Uh, the reason why it failed is because, uh, one, you can't measure in a living human being what a normal level of serotonin is, uh, and um, which makes it difficult to um, make any concrete statement about it. And, and the other aspect was something that uh, the retired, the guy who was the last guy, Tom, Tom Insel, who was the psychiatrist who was the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, who retired this um, last year and said that they had been looking for a chemical, biological chemical imbalance for the last 42 years and hadn't found one yet. You know, and, and at that point, the National Institute of Mental Health was moving on to look at cognitive behavioral therapy for depression as opposed to uh, drug treatment, which is also why the current recommendation is for 80% of people who have depression that the, the first and best thing to do is to see a counselor. They, they of course, would send them to count cognitive behavioral therapy. We would say we have a superior and sufficient answer to those kind of problems. Counseling doesn't need to continue, discontinue drugs for you during counseling. Um, always keep in mind that there are chemical abnormalities in the body that affect behavior, uh, as, as we talked about earlier. And I'm going to skip the next three questions. They're written out in your chart, but in the interest of time, these are questions that can help you differentiate whether a person has a physical problem or a, um, a medical problem. Those one, two, three, there aren't any blanks, so I'm going to let those go in the interest of time. And now, down to the important thing. Your primary goal in counseling is what? Your primary goal in counseling is to glorify God. Your primary goal in counseling is to glorify God. Your primary goal for the counselee is that you would help teach them biblical principles which allow them to glorify God. And whether they take medicine or not has no bearing on that, does it? No, it doesn't. Um... So your goal is not to get people off medicine. You should be careful uh, when you respond. If your counselee raises the question about reducing or going off their medicine, you want to find out what the reason is for stopping it. Usually it's cost, side effects, and the medical resume effect. Medical resume effect is that since, since all of our records are now held with the strictest security in electronic medical records, none of us fear that someone else might find their way into them, do we? Do we? 
Uh, yeah, no, not so much. Yeah, all it took was a 17-year-old guy in the Ukraine to hack Target. I guess they can get into medical records if they want. So that's you know, three reasons, cost, side effects, and, and then a lot of people don't wish it in their record. That's why a lot of people want to stop. You need, when a counselee asks you if he can stop their medicine, as the little lady did when I, I was counseling her, you need to explain to them there's a lot of work to do and that you'll deal with it later. And only discuss stopping the medicine when you're convinced that they have substituted the use of biblical principles to deal with the problems that occurred in their life when they developed the symptoms that eventually got them the diagnosis that got them on the medicine. All right? They have to have learned how to deal with the problem of life that took them to the doctor in a way that is more productive and indeed biblical before you would even consent to them going and talking to the doctor. When you're convinced of that, send them back to their doctor. And what I send them back to the doctor to say is this. Doc, I want to thank you. You know, I came to see you a year ago and my life was in the toilet. I was struggling. You were kind and you helped me. And I want to thank you for that. But Doc, I've been in counseling now for who knows how long, six months, you know, something like that. And what I really want to know now, and I'm doing much better, and what I really want to know now is do I need to take this medicine for the rest of my life? Would you help me take a vacation from this medicine? Would you help me gradually wean off of it? Those are important operative terms so that I can find out if I need to take it forever. And unless the patient has schizophrenia and has had multiple episodes of psychosis and unless they have uh, bipolar mania and they've had multiple episodes of mania, most doctors are going to say yes. If they've had those other two things, they're probably going to say no and that's probably, there's probably a reason Um, but generally speaking, with those two exemptions, they'll usually say yes, and then they'll help. Um, If they say no and your counselee persists, then probably what they need to do is get a second opinion. You know, go see another physician and tell them their story and let that doctor give them an opinion about it. Uh, Yes, get a second opinion. And you need to continue to keep tag tag bases with your counselee. It says three to four weeks. Honestly, I would say it's more like three to six months. You know, I have people come back when I'm done with them in counseling in six weeks and do checkups. Some of them will come back every six weeks for a long time so I can make sure that they're doing well. And as they leave, I want to make sure that they are also in the care of other people. You know, your last counseling session needs to be who's going to be your accountability person? What small group are you in? Who is your deacon? Um, these are, and then you ought to outline all the things that you've taught them on a sheet of paper by day so that they'll review them. You know, on Monday, you're going to review the four rules of communication. Tuesday, you're going to review how to deal with anger. Wednesday, you're going to review the role of the husband. Thursday, you're going to review the role of the wife. And you're going to do that forever. Why? Because if you don't keep reviewing those things, guess what their behavior will do? It will regress to the mean. So so you, you need to make sure that you're not just, you're giving a good handoff, a warm handoff, as we say in medicine. Then you need to speak biblically about the heart and life issues that got the counselee into the mess that they were in. From the first hour, hold on a second, from the first hour of that first day, she was the first person I ever said that sentence to. Uh, I don't know why it occurred to me, it just did uh, that day. And I, I looked at her and I said, I think you can get better, but you have to be willing to say this sentence. And the sentence was, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. 
Why was that important to her? Well, she had to want to glorify God with her life more than she wanted to get her ex-husband back, more than she wanted to be skinny, more than she wanted to feel good. She had to want to glorify God with her life more. And then I took her to Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You might want to write these things down. Wake up, get your pens out. Uh, the second one, first is I want to glorify God with my life. And that's defined by 2 Corinthians 5, 9. The second aspect it is, is Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And I told her, well, God is the one who decides what glorifying him looks like. And what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then love your neighbor. It doesn't say you're supposed to love yourself, to love other people. It says love your neighbor. The problem was the woman loved herself entirely. She was completely wrapped up in herself. That was why she was doing everything that she was doing. So I told her she had to love God more. Love God more than what? Than getting her ex-husband back. Than being skinny. Than than feeling good. She had to love God more than all those things. And then if she did love God more... By God's grace, as a Christian, she had to be willing to live by the imperatives of Scripture because it is God who defines what loving him looks like, is it not? And he defines it in John 14, where he tells us in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And we would go through her life and pick through every last little thing that she was doing and we would compare it to Scripture. And, and at that point, we would decide, is this what the Bible says you ought to be doing? And if it isn't, this is what the Bible says. And then that becomes the, the, the process of biblical counseling. It is applying the scripture to the life of the individual. She desperately needed to know that God loved her and that because he did, she could depend on his enablement to take her through the trial that she was in. Then we had to recast her behavior. All those behaviors that she had accumulated in the years that she had been starving herself to death. It took about 16 weeks for us to do it. I counseled her for 16 weeks, and then I was done. Now, if you know anything about anorexia, that's a remarkable statement. You know, the people in the industry talk about anorexia in terms of you'll be doing this the rest of your life, and you know what? You will. If you don't get it in your head that you want to glorify God with your life more than you want to be skinny. Otherwise, you are always going to be standing on a scale and starving yourself to death. The motive has to change. The purpose has to change. And so we started going through her life a little bit at a time. Uh, we had her take a look at the, all those behaviors, and we defined them in a Romans six sixteen sense, which says, Know ye not to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. And what did we say to this woman? You are a slave. Yes, you are enslaved to this thought that you have to get your ex-husband back. So... First thing that we uh, dealt with was eating. Now, which of the Big Ten Commandments does not eating most apply to? What was she systematically and slowly doing to herself? I, I heard it out there. She was killing herself. Thou shalt not kill. Yeah, that's exactly what not eating and starving yourself to death is. That's it entirely. So she had to eat. We gave her uh, diets, calorie counts. Her sister, the RN, kept track of it all, which is exactly the opposite direction that current anorectic treatment goes. Um, you know, it is different, but it worked. Uh, she ate and she regained her strength and she regained her weight. Um, 
She wouldn't sleep in her own bed. Anybody want to guess why she wouldn't sleep in her own bed at night? Yeah, she, her, she'd wake up and her husband wasn't there. Yeah, so which one of the big commandments is that? How about covet? Covet? Anybody want to say covet? Thou shalt not covet thy, thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's husband, thy neighbor's donkey, thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's car. Yes, she was just a coveter. <laughs> That's what she was doing. So she had to sleep in her own bed. Yes. And she had to give up on the idea of ever reattaching herself to her ex-husband. We'll talk about that again in a moment. She wasn't going to church. She said being around church people made her nervous, you know. And I have almost no sympathy for people who tell me things like this. I, you know, I just, I'm ruthless. Um, they tell me, I just don't feel good enough to go to church. I'll smile and say, you're going to feel bad, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to feel bad on Sunday morning. That's fine. You can feel bad at home or you can feel bad at church. Either one, so you might as well be in church. And the reason why is because I'll probably see you in the Walmart parking lot at noon anyway. You'll be well enough to be in the Walmart parking lot at noon. You can be in church. Why does she need to be in church? Because there she'll be around people who love her and she'll be under this teaching of the scriptures that she needs to hear. She'll be someplace where people can pray for her, where she could go to an ABF, be part of a small group. And the real reason why she doesn't want to go to church and the real reason why she doesn't feel comfortable around the people in the first place was, oh, I think it's something called conviction, isn't it? Yeah, when you're sinning apace and living in a disorderly way, being around God's people tends to make you just a little uncomfortable. So we, we told her, what does the Bible say about not going to church? We are not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Yes, I have little patience with people who tell me they're all about Jesus, but they don't like his church. That is sort of like telling me that you'd like to be my friend, but you don't like my wife, Helen. You know what, you know what you're going to hear if you tell me that? Well, pal, we're not friends, nor will we ever be. The church is the bride of Christ, period, period. That's it. There, we have a two-parent family. We have our, our Lord and we have his church of which we are supposed to be respectfully a part. So she had to go back to church. She also had to start reading her Bible. We told her it was sort of like spiritual anorexia. Newborn babes do does need the sincere milk of the word to grow thereby, right? So she had to return to reading her Bible. We set out Bible reading plan for her, like in John, one chapter a day to start with. Uh, and then she had to start praying and praying for other people, not praying for her own, own miserable self. We gave her Bible verses to memorize all, all over 16 weeks, keep in mind. Then she wasn't working, and that really bothered me a lot. The reason why it bothered me a lot, and probably bothered most of her family who were knocking their lights out to do everything that she wasn't doing, was that I was a taxpayer in the state of Indiana. And quite frankly, I did not wish to pay the taxes to continue to support her in the way that she had become accustomed. So I thought it would be best if we found her a job, and we did. And no, I did not show her that verse that says that if we don't work, we won't eat. Didn't think it would work. So, it was a little difficult to get her a job, but we found her, for one, it was in a family business that a member of the family owned, and it was a donut shop. Oh, yes, the irony of it. Yes, that's right. Uh, and then she had to admit that pursuing her ex-husband was covetousness, idolatry, envy. And that the Bible actually says that if you've divorced your spouse and they're married to someone else and they get divorced again, you cannot remarry them. 
And, and, and I would hope there would never be a preacher on the face of the earth who would marry a saved woman back to an unsaved man. The Bible prohibits the binding together in unequal yokes. Does it not? So, and she gave that up. And last of all, she was a user, big-time user, using everybody. So I told her she had to do Christian service. Christian service was two hours uh, a day for someone who wasn't a relative, who couldn't pay her anything, who was worse off than she was. And, um, and, she had to, and it had to be a person, and she had to do it indefinitely. You should write all that down if you can remember it. Um, it's, it's great for depressed people. Two hours a week, not for a relative. There's always secondary gain in doing something for your mother-in-law. Then you, um, it, it, it needs to be somebody who is worse off than you are, who can give you nothing, from whom you take nothing. And you're going to do it two hours a week for the rest of your life. It gets your nose out of your own belly button and into the life of someone else. It communicates that message to you that there are people who are far worse off in this life than I am. And it's marvelous for depressed people. Um, All right. Then we moved on. Need to lead your counseling in analyzing the issues of the heart that produced or contributed to the resultant struggles. A very good resource for this, uh, Brad's book on... uh, um, um, Gospel treason. Uh, another good one is uh, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. I had her read that and she hated it. Yeah, why? Why do you think she hated it? People were big and God was small. Yeah, it was an indictment of the way that she was living. It was useful, but she didn't exactly enjoy it. Then you need to bring the gospel to bear on their thoughts, words, and actions. The best place that the gospel would come to bear on this woman was Colossians 3.12 which describes us as beloved. This is a woman who thought she couldn't live or breathe without the love of a man who was never going to love her. Never, never was going to love her. Who was, at that very moment, loved by God and always would be. Not put up with, not, not tolerated. We're described as beloved. That's what she needed to know. The gospel Then, the biblical goal, of course, is to become more like Christ through the problems. It's the heart of Romans 8, 28 and 29. If I had time, I'd talk about it a long time, but I don't. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, not particularly our purpose. And what is His purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That, folks, is the difference between psychology, psychiatry, integrative Christian counseling, and biblical counseling. That is the dividing line. On one side, you have victims of everything. You know, in, in medicine, people are victims of disease. In psychology and counseling, or secular counseling, people are generally victims of other people. And what do we do? We help you negotiate how to get even with them or whatever. In biblical counseling, we're soldiers in Christ's army. And the goal is not necessarily for us to win out against all those who might harm or oppose us. Our goal is to glorify and honor God and grow in the process of the struggle. That's what Romans 8, 28, and 29 are strictly about. For the anorectic lady, the, the understanding those verses was the difference between being a victim of her own idolatry or a growing and changing child of God, which is what she became. 
To be more like Christ through daily problems means to handle or respond to them and the problems in a way that pleases him. And I can tell you that the Bible promises great victory in difficult situations where change and feeling may not be possible. Now, would you like to know what happened to her? Maybe I'll tell you. Yeah, I will. All right. How did she turn out? Well, you remember the registered nurse sister who thought I was crazy? Yeah, she's now an ACBC certified counselor. She took the treatment. Uh, This woman has been back to work for years, eating normally. She um, eventually met a a nice gentleman while she was serving in Awana, and, and they married. Uh, you know, someone who wasn't a drunk, someone who wouldn't beat her or her children. Uh, she eventually got a job uh, out of the donut shop, and um, it was uh, working as a home health aide. Uh, her Christian service assignment was to go to the nursing home and read to little old ladies. So, you know, it, was, it sort of connects into the job she eventually got. And uh, the first client that she took care of Um, was a a very old lady who only lived two weeks, not because of the care she was given. It was just that was her time. And um, during that period of time, in conversations with the little old lady, um, um, the counselee found out that the woman uh, didn't know the Lord. And she shared the gospel with that lady. And that lady accepted Christ as her Savior. Think about that a moment. Think about where that lady was on the first day I saw her. She was nearly dead. And by the time we got done with her, she was a living, breathing, gospel-spreading servant of Jesus Christ. Think about that. And and the story actually gets a little bit better. She came back after the lady died uh, to pick up the durable medical equipment that had been put in the house by the company she worked for. And the family was there cleaning out the, the woman's apartment. And they were really glum. And the reason why they were glum is that they were believers. And they didn't know that Aunt Ethel had accepted Christ as Savior. They were convinced that she had uh, died and split hell wide open. You know, that that was their concern. And so this lady got to share with them that she had shared with their loved one the gospel and that she was in heaven, that she had accepted Christ as her Savior. That's just an amazing outcome, isn't it? Now, I, you can attribute the amazing outcome to the Word of God. It's quick and powerful. It is superior and sufficient to the answers that medicine had for this woman. Medicine tried, medicine failed. It wasn't that they didn't want to help, and it wasn't that they didn't try, they just couldn't. And, and the Word of God was superior in this regard and sufficient for her need. And then I think the next most important thing was that I didn't allow her counseling be determined by her labels. I would encourage you not to either. Don't look at people as labels. See them for what they are. Living, breathing human beings who behave sometimes badly and, 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 and who need to know what the scriptures say, what the gospel is, and how it can impact their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this time that I've had to talk about your word. And I thank you for speaking through it and through me. Lord, I pray for the folks who are here today. I pray that they would take what they have heard and learned and go help other people with it, Lord, and and show other people what the gospel can do in their lives. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.